Um, I'm going to be totally honest with you today on a pretty big area of struggle for me. Um, something where I'll bet you struggle too. So I'm going to try to relate to you at the same time, but I am going to be very honest with you. Um, I think a lot of times people think that their struggles are very unique to themselves and they think that what they deal with no one else really deals with and so they don't feel like they could talk to anyone about it. I think you would also be shocked to know that the, whatever you struggle with is most likely very common. In fact, I'll bet I struggle with it too. Even a pastor, even a preaching pastor would struggle with some of the same things. And so, for instance, occasionally I find myself, and see if you're with me, I find myself in a funk um, where I feel kind of grimy inside, weak, distracted, I mean, even down to my bones. Um, very preoccupied on my own failures, my own insecurities, my own fears, my own sins, and I have a hard time shaking it. I don't do a very good job in those moments of really applying the gospel to myself, the good news of what Jesus has done, the just the beautiful, scandalous message of a living, dying, and living again God, and what it has done for what He has done for you and what He has done for me. I don't sometimes get my arms all the way around that message. Does that make sense? I just forget who I am and I forget who God is. And whenever that happens, I feel that old man, that old Luke, trying to climb back onto my shoulders and bring back some of those old things. And sometimes when I deny how good the gospel is for me, it's usually in those moments that I become very focused and very fixated on my own garbage. Right? I can always tell when this is happening. Because one of the biggest byproducts is not only do I abandon the gospel and its reality and its truth for me in my life, I also abandon God's mission. Right? I'm going to go ahead and just kind of define that term for you. I, a lot of you, you, you hear, you've heard over time, missional, being on God's mission, living a mission-fueled life, having mission intentionality. We say those things interchangeably all the time. But as I was in our own missional community this last week, we started talking about it, and it kind of became obvious, and, it, and probably you would agree, that a lot of times we use the word evangelism and missional interchangeably, and they don't mean the same thing. Whenever you were evangelistic, that is a part of being missional. But being a good mom to your kids is living on God's mission as well. Being a good husband to your wife is living on God's mission as well. Being a good employer is being very missional. Being a good employee is being intentional with God's mission on your life. But so that's just as an aside, just to kind of clarify that those terms. But I do find that the grimier I feel. Just the slurge that kind of comes on my life. The more that that happens, you know, the more distracted I get, the more I focus on all that stuff, the more self-consumed I get. And the more I withdraw from the very field that God has sown me into, which for me, in my case, is the city of Knoxville. My mission is the city of Knoxville as a pastor. I mean, is anyone with me so far? Y'all are like, I'm not shaking my head. Then people will think I'm messed up. You are messed up, I promise, okay? You're just as messed up as I am. But I find myself to be in a funk, surrounded by a funky people living funky lives. And I don't know that I have anything to say to them. Does that sound weird coming from a pastor? Sometimes it feels like I've got nothing to offer them, right? Trouble at home, trouble inside, trouble everywhere. God should probably just find somebody else to carry his beautiful message to a funky people in a sloppy city, right? 
because I'm just not a very good example. Anyone with me there? Yeah, y'all aren't shaking your head anymore, are you? I'm not shaking my head to that. But even when I do feel clean enough, upright enough, even when I do have those moments where I feel like all my ducks are in a row, I still have a place. Listen, I still have a place, what I call my squeal point, right? Where I will go with the sloppy city, the messy city, and I'll engage a culture that desperately needs the message of Jesus Christ. I'll do that, but only up to a certain point. A certain point's in my head. It's a lion in the sand. And I'll sit with you, but I won't sit forever. I'll write checks, but they're not going to be too big. I'll be hospitable, but eventually I want you out. <laughs> you know, I'll sit and eat lunch with you, but you better not drone on and on and on and bleed all over me. I'll do, I'll do all this thing, but there's always going to be a place where I say, no more, I will go no further with you, you very sloppy city. I won't do it. It's that squeal point. I don't have a very great pain tolerance. And the thing is, is I think all of us have it. All of us have it. It varies. Some of us can carry a bigger load than others. But we all have that place where we say, even when I feel like investing in a messed up place, at a messed up time, I will only go so far. I will only deal to a certain extent. And then I'm not. Not anymore. Now, how does the gospel change this? How does a story, a living story, about our hero king doing what he did for all of us, totally despite us, how does that change this? How does it change any of this? You know, we... We talk about fixing our behavior, but as what we're going to see again today is what we've always seen, we do want to fix our behavior. I want to perform better. I want to obey better. I want to be a better Christian, but not because I want God to do anything for me. I want to do those things because God has already done for me. My good obedience and my performance is not an application to get more grace from God. It is an echoing, an imaging of the grace I've already received from God. So with all of this already said, today in today's text, we find ourselves yet again, just like last week, in a very familiar, very relevant place. Okay, So if this is your first time here, or you've only come maybe once or twice, just so you know, we're preaching all the way through the book of Nehemiah. We've spent all summer on it, and we're actually on chapter 11 today. Okay, We're going from verse 1 to verse last. And in this part of the story, I find myself... Real fast. You know, because ages may change. This might have been 2,500 years ago. And the clothes may change. And our music might be a lot cooler, right? And our food saltier. But when it all comes down to it, the human heart is the human heart. Right? I mean, the very same things that you think in your mind, they thought in their mind. In the story we're about to read. The very doubts that crept up in their hearts creep up in yours today. Because people just don't change that much. And so look in your Bible. Look at Nehemiah 11. And just to kind of cliff note you up to speed, um, Nehemiah is a man who left a pretty cool, beautiful situation to go into a very messy one. Right? And he did it on purpose. It's a story about a man who was high up in a political office. He had a lot of glory, a lot of weight to his name. And of his own volition, he left that place, which is the capital of Babylon, Susa, to go to Jerusalem, right? which is a very messed up place. Now, this place had been in ruins for 141 years. That's a long time. Generations had come, generations had gone, and it just became the new normal to see walls all crumble down, to see houses just totally gutted through, to see just a ghost town. That was their normal. 
And he came to build up the walls. He wanted to build them up to about 15 foot. So just as we said, that's about 12. So imagine three more feet on top of that. Two and a half miles in circumference all the way around the, the capital city. That's a big wall. It took him 52 days to do it. Massive construction undertaking. And they pulled it off in 52 days. Right? Why did they do that? wanted to do it because he felt his heart break by the power of the Holy Spirit, as we read in the story in chapter 1, to go and do that to build a distinction between God's people and the people of the surrounding nations. To show this is what it looks like when God owns people. This is what it looks like when God pours his blessing out on a certain people. These walls build a distinguishing mark between them and between us. Between us and between what's going on out there. That's what it was about, right? By the time Nehemiah got there, something we don't talk about very much, he shows up with a big troop of people, a big pocket full of cash, ready to do the work. Of course, no one really wanted him there, right? Because the new normal was just fine with everybody. That was a ghost town. Wasn't hardly anyone living there. Some people say between four and 6,000 people living in the city at that time. That's not very many people, right? Everyone was living out in the suburbs, out in the little cities away where all the good schools were at, right? They're all living out there, peppered all over, down the river, down the road, but no one was living in the city because there's nothing but misery there. Nothing but gnashing of teeth and ashes and rubble and bad memories. That's all that was going on there. So what do we have now? We have a man who has built a city, built the walls. Now you've got a distinguished people. They've all repented of their sin by this time. They've all praised God. They've all renewed their covenant. And now it's time to repopulate the brand new city. Now they've got to rejuvenate the population. And that's where we find ourselves today. So we're going to go ahead and jump in in verse 1 and listen. I know you've already looked ahead. Yes, there are a lot of names there. Um, I'm sorry. Between last week and this week, we've read the whole Hebrew phone book. And these names are difficult. There is a reason I'm reading every single name. First of all, I want to be able to say that we preached every verse in this book or in this, this, uh, this certain part of the Bible. I want to be able to say that because I think it's important or else it wouldn't be in there. It's inspired word. But there is something I'm looking for at the very end. So hang on with me, okay? Is that a deal? All right. Nehemiah 11 verse 1. Now the leaders of the people lived in Jerusalem, and the rest of the people cast lots to bring one out of ten to live in Jerusalem, the holy city, while nine out of ten remained in the other towns. And the people blessed all the men who willingly offered to live in Jerusalem. Okay, pause. What's going on right there? Real quickly. All right? This is what's going on. They're repopulating the city. You've got two groups of people. Some want to go. They willingly volunteer. I'm going. I want to go in. Then you've got people that are like, yeah, about that. I'm going to stay in the suburbs, right? So they cast lots to see who is going to go in. What is that? What is casting lots? It's their way of discerning what God would want at that moment. It's our equivalent of paper, scissors, rock, or flipping a coin, right? And we don't do that to hear the word of God today, by the way. <laughs> I mean, football games maybe, but really what, we, we have the Holy Spirit today, so there is a little bit of a difference. Whenever we need guidance in a certain situation, we don't have to flip a coin, you know? Should I go to Africa on a mission trip? I don't know. Let's flip a coin. We don't do that. We just listen to the Holy Ghost and whatever he tells us we do, okay? But back then, back then, they would cast lots. And whenever it fell favorable for a family to go into the city, paper, paper, scissors, they go, ah, I guess we're going. That's how they did that. That's what's going on right now. Okay, two groups of people. Let's go on to verse 3. These are the chiefs of the province who lived in Jerusalem. 
But in the towns of Judah, everyone lived on his property in their towns. Israel, the priests, the Levites, the temple servants, and the descendants of Solomon's servants. And in Jerusalem lived certain of the sons of Judah and of the sons of Benjamin. Of the sons of Judah, Athaiah, the son of Uzziah, the son of Zechariah, the son of Amariah, the son of Shepatiah, the son of Mahalalel, the son of Perez, and Messiah, the son of Baruch, son of Colhose, son of Hazaiah, son of Adaiah, son of Joyrib. Joyrib. I do like to enjoy some ribs every now and then. I'm going to name my son Joyrib. <laughs> hey, you got to have fun with these names, man. I mean, come on. They'd be doing the same to you if the tables were turned. I'm telling you right now, I'd be laughing at all your names. Son of Zechariah, son of Shilonite, all the sons of Perez who lived in Jerusalem were 468 valiant men. Boy, I love that, valiant men. These are just men they're counting, so you do the math. A lot of them had wives and a bunch of kids. And these are the sons of Benjamin. Salu, the son of Meshalam, the son of Joed, the son of Padeah, the son of Koleah, the son of Masaiah, the son of Ithiel, the son of Jesheah, and his brothers, men of valor, 928. So they represented. That's a lot. Joel, the son of Zikri, was their overseer. And Judah, the son of Hasanuah, was, was second over the city. Of the priests, Jedeah, the son of Joyarib, Jachin, Sareah, the son of Hilkiah, son of Meshalam, the son of Zadok, son of Marioth, son of Ahitub, ruler of the house of God, and their brothers who did the work of the house, 822. And Adaiah, the son of Jeroam, the son of Pelaliah, of Pelilah, Pelaliah, Pelaliah, how about that? Son of Amzi, son of Zechariah, son of Pashur, son of Malchijah, and his brothers, heads of fathers' houses, 242. And Amishai, the son of Azarel, son of Azai, the son of Meshelamoth, son of Emer, and their brothers, mighty men of valor, mighty men of valor. I love that again. 128. Their overseer was Zabdiel, the son of Hagadolim. And of the Levites, Shemaiah, the son of Hashub, the son of Azrakam, the son of Hashabiah, the son of Bunny. <laughs> we messed with Bunny last week. I'm going to give him a break this week. And Shabbatai, and Jozebad, and the chiefs of the Levites, who were over the outside work of the house of God. And Madaniah, the son of Micah, which probably is the most normal name we've read all morning right there. People are still naming their kids Micah. So there you have it. I mean, what are the chances of me nailing any of these names, realistically? Probably pretty small. And son of Zabdi, son of Asaph, who was the leader of the praise, who gave thanks. And Bakbakiah, the second among his brothers. And Abda, the son of Shemua, son of Galal, the son of Jedathun. And all the Levites in the holy city were 284. The gatekeepers, Akub, Talmon, and their brothers, who kept watch at the gates, were 172. And the rest of Israel and of the priests and the Levites were in all the towns of Judah, everyone in his inheritance. But the temple servants lived in Ophel, and Zihah and Gishpah were over the temple servants. The overseer of the Levites in Jerusalem was Uzi, the son of Bani, son of Hashabiah, the son of Madaniah, the son of Micah, the son of Asaph, the singers, over the work of the house of God. For there was a command from the king concerning them, and a fixed provision for the singers as every day required. And Padahiah, the son of Meshezebel, the son of Zerah, the son of Judah, was at the king's side in all matters concerning the people. And as for the villages, 
with their fields. Some of the people of Judah lived in Kiriath Arba and its villages, and in Dibon and its villages, and in Jacabzeel and its villages, and in Yeshua and Moladah and Beth Pelet and Hazor Shual and in Beersheba and its villages, in Ziklag and Mekanah and its villages, in Enramon and Zorah and Jarmuth and Zakanah and Adullam and their villages, Lachish and its fields, and Ezekah and its villages. So they encamped from Beersheba to the valley of Hinnom. The people of Benjamin also lived from Geba onward at Michmash, Aijah, Bethel, and its villages. Anathoth, Nob, Ananiah, Hazor, Ramah, Gitaim, Hadid, Zeboam, Nabalit, Lod, and Ono, the Valley of Craftsmen. And certain divisions of the Levites and Judah were assigned to Benjamin. <sighs> there it is. Right? Thank you. So, my point is this. <laughs> my point in all those names is this. You see... How many people this took? I mean, do you see how many people it took? See how large of an endeavor this is, and yet individuals matter? Isn't that amazing? I mean, this is just one chapter. We've hit chapter after chapter that have these bear traps full of names, right? This massive endeavor, this huge undertaking, and yet individuals matter. I love that because most all of you that came in here this morning have no idea who it was that showed up at 7.15 to start unloading the trailer or who counts the offering to make sure that the numbers stack up and we do that in all excellence or who does the background checks on the people watching our children right most of you don't know that individuals matter we're going to keep planting churches we're going to keep dropping new campuses we're going to keep starting new missional communities individuals matter this is a huge endeavor knoxville requires a huge endeavor that's what i love about things like this not only like this it's in this that we see two categories of people which is the meat of what i want to talk about today and i'd already given brief mention to it you have two types of people typified in this part of the story you should find yourself in at least one of those groups fairly fast you have the willing those who were willing to go in and engage a messy city to this, for the sake of the city and for the glory of God. Then you have those that were unwilling to engage that very same city for the sake of the city and for the glory of God. And I want to talk about those that were being tithed into a city. That's what was happening. So I think it was last week I talked about how Nehemiah was basically beckoning them to tithe their first fruits to make sure that the temple could keep going, to make sure that the city was going to run like it needed to. He was basically calling on them to give of their first fruits, a tithe. Now he's saying, I want you to tithe your people too. The unwilling were tithed into the city. That's what we have. And they were chosen by lot. Why? Because they'd rather stay at home. That's what was needed. They'd rather stay at home. The thought of, for these people, the thought of a drastic or an emphatic sacrifice would probably make them a little bit queasy. Right? They already had their lives. They already had their rhythms going on. They already had the business going on out in the suburbs, right? That they enjoyed. It was probably handed to them by their father and their father's father. Right? Their kids had already gotten to know all the kids in the neighborhood. They finally got a school that they like. You know, the neighbors they don't hate. You know, they, everything was already a rhythm and a cycle that they were comfortable with and had been the normal for them for generations. They weren't just being relocated. They were being uprooted. Uprooted. Replanted. And moving into a dump at that. Imagine that, moving into a place that had been vacant for 141 years in total rubble. I mean, yeah, the walls were brand new, 
But what were they built with? Broken stones? Burned out stones? Yeah, the temple was brand new. They just fixed that up. But it was never its former glory. It's a brand new city. But it was a dump all at the same time. They weren't willing to go. They had to be made to go, which we're going to talk about here in just a minute. Maybe this would be you. Maybe this would be you. See if you can find yourself here. Maybe not the quickest on the draw to engage a messy city. (laughs) Maybe not the first to volunteer or sign up for stuff. And when you do, it's because you drew the short straw, or you felt obligated, or your buddies did it, or something like that. Are some of you in that group? I know sometimes I can be. You have a squeal point too, don't you? And it comes real fast. A low tolerance for pain when it comes to being missional, being intentional with God's gospel to a very hurting, very empty, and a very needy people. Then you have this other group of people, the volunteers. Those who felt called to rejuvenate and repopulate a city, right? No lot was needed for these folks, right? They're like, I'm going to sign up, put the coin back in your pocket, I'm ready to go, you know? totally different group of people. Now, listen, I'm not bragging because I've already told on myself a bunch and I'm sure I've got more to tell on myself here in a minute, but this is the group I found myself in, okay, and that I still do. So whenever I became a Christian, I'd grown up my whole life in church hearing the message of the gospel sound something like this, Jesus died for your sins, which is true. That's a true statement. Jesus died for your sins, right? But that's all I had ever heard. I didn't know that I would ever be saved into something. I thought I was just being saved out of a broken life. I didn't know I was being saved into a mission. But one night, at the age of 21, I hear this message, and it's different. It's different. Because it says, oh, no, no, no. Jesus is a missionary, and he came into messy, broken, sloppy, sleazy culture, which you're a part of, to rescue you, to breathe life into your dying bones, to send you just like he was sent. Look, there's a mission. There's a mission that's much bigger than you. It's much bigger than what you were just saved out of. There's something huge, and yet you're allowed to be a part. Now, when I heard that, I couldn't sign up fast enough. I couldn't sign up fast enough. It wasn't queasiness I felt inside. It was excitement. I was ready to go. No lot was needed. I was really willing to abandon all of my connections, my rhythms, and I did. I abandoned everything. I basically started totally over because I felt like that's what God was calling me to do. I was a totally different person. I'll move into the dump. I don't care. In fact, I'll sleep on the floor in the dump. I was that guy. But can I tell you a secret? As a representative from the group of the volunteers, I guess you could say, we are just as scared as anybody because we have no idea what God is going to do. And we're a little bit freaked out at the drastic nature of things and what's being called out of us. And you think we don't have a squeal point? We do too. We do too. Might be in a different place. I mean, hey, I like mission until I don't, right? I like counseling and pastoring and loving people until I don't. There's going to be a place where something is too long, too messy, too excruciating, too expensive, too exhausting, too something, right? At some point... Even the allegedly courageous have a squeal point where they put themselves and their comfort and their identity before God's glory. Everybody does it at some point. So here's the summary of the book of Nehemiah, real fast for you. We are being called as a radical people to build a city within a city. Right? We are called as Legacy Church, just so you know, if you're a visitor, this is what we truly believe. As Legacy Church, we believe that we are called to be a radical people 
a city within a city for the sake of Knoxville. That to the glory of God, we could see the boundaries grow. We could see people become radically saved and added to what God is already doing for the sake of Knoxville. So we don't hate Knoxville. We're not here to steal from Knoxville, mimic Knoxville, rip off Knoxville, criticize Knoxville. We're here because we love Knoxville. We are a city within a city. You know? The Bible in Matthew 5, it says this. It says that you are a light of the world. This is Jesus Christ talking to you and me. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Cannot be mistaken. Cannot be forgotten. It's impossible to miss. This is you. This is me. We are called to be a people who are impossible to miss. Impossible to deny. We are called to lead, comfort, proclaim, demonstrate, live out what rescued lives really look at. And listen, this means engaging the culture. This means surrounding yourself with the mess that is anxiety, drunkenness, adultery, drug abuse. Anything that you can think of. Listen, that is what the city is right now. We are a city within the city for the sake of the city. That is where we'll find ourselves when we are on God's mission. A lot of times, that's where we're going to find ourselves. So I want to look at the unvolunteers and the volunteers. Once again, with this in mind, with what I just said in mind, okay? Hopefully by now you've found yourself in one of the two groups. Some of you are in both groups because you're really screwed up, right? (laughs) That's a joke. Relax. (laughs) I'm in both of them, I think. The unvolunteers. The families had the lots drawn. Let me tell you, our nature, this is the nature. This is how it works out. Our nature, our flesh, our default setting is to work on ourselves and repair ourselves before we go messing with anybody else, right? I want to work on my own backyard before I go and start messing with somebody else. Hey Luke, I've got plenty of my own swamp to drain before I go messing with my neighbors, you know? That's what we do. I don't want to mess with my, my wife's issues. I don't want to mess with my neighbors, my kids' issues, my bosses, my employees, because I have got so much junk in my own life. And so, mission fails. Why? Because the win for us is being preoccupied and fascinated with ourselves. Being preoccupied and fascinated with ourselves. And to add to this, we live in this very frenetic, paced culture. I guess you can say it that way. Well, we feel like we're barely holding things together as it is. We don't feel like we're a very good illustration for God's grace, for God's growth. Hey, Luke, I'm not the best illustration for God's grace. I mean, it's just spit and rubber bands holding this thing together. I mean, I am one crisis away from this whole thing going up in smoke. Right? And we all have our hidden sins, the ones that nobody knows about. The evil thoughts that come up on your mind that you'd be horrified if you knew that anyone knew what was going on in your mind, right? Your own little potholes, your own little pattern sins that you've always struggled with. We all have those. And we think to ourselves, I can't even see over that big mountain of my own junk far enough to see anybody else's. I don't want to involve myself in the city's mess because I can't even get my arms around my own mess. Right? So we tell ourselves, once I get my own trash in line, once I manage my own furniture and my own garbage house well enough, once I get my own stuff taken care of, then I'll do this missional stuff, Luke. Then we'll feed the homeless, or I'll talk to my boss, or I'll go to the bar and meet with some drunk, or whatever. We'll do that, Luke. No, you won't. No, you won't. That won't happen. 
It won't happen. You will never be clean enough to help somebody else. Hear me. That's going to sound tricky, and I'm going to explain it here in a minute. You will never be clean enough to help somebody else. You're waiting for a moment that is never going to happen. It's a fantasy. It's a season that you have in your mind, the season where your to-do list is all checked off, and all of your garbage is taken care of because you read all the right books. And you wake up one morning and there's nothing wrong. It's a fantasy. It's not going to happen. Because the more you grow in Christ, the more you grow... It's what we call sanctification. That's what the Bible calls sanctification, which is just growth in grace. As we progress and we look more and more like Jesus as the days go on until he comes back on a cool white horse and ends everything. And then we know as we are fully known. Until that happens, we're growing in this process called sanctification. The more that you grow in grace, the more garbage you see. It's like the light turns up in amplification. It's amazing. If you'd asked me 10 years ago if I thought I was a pretty rotten guy, I would have said, nah, pretty good guy. You ask me now, man, I'm a mess. I'll be honest with you. I'm a mess. Volunteers. And I'm going to leave it there. I left that on a cliffhanger. It's public speaking 101. Leave people wanting more, right? Volunteers, right? Why do you do it? I'm speaking to myself right now. I'm preaching to myself really hard. Why do you do it? Why do you sign up for things? Why are you the first on the field? Why do you do that? Why are you so anxious to engage the mess of other people's lives and apply the gospel in a real way that makes sense to them? Why do you do that? You know, I think some people try to fix themselves before they feel worthy enough to fix other people. And then I think other people try to fix others so that they themselves feel worthy. It's performance reward. I think some of us, to put it in another way, will try to repair and, I don't know, sweep up our own lives so we feel qualified to do it in other people's lives. And then other folks will actually sweep up and pick out the malfunctions in other people's mess so that they themselves feel worthy and qualified. It's performance reward. And I'm telling you, for years, for years, I've been in the ministry for 15 years. I've only been a Christian for like 16 years, which means I became a pastor way too soon, you know? But all I've ever known is just really hungering for people to become Christians, really wanting the power of God to sweep over, especially a younger generation, specifically the college campus, really desiring new lives, new marriages, no addictions, just wanting to see something very radical happen. But if I'm very honest with you, a piece of my desires is that I would be approved and accepted inside for what I was doing before God and before man. Isn't that weird? Isn't that rotten? I wouldn't say it like that. And it would just come out. But subconsciously, that's the piston that's firing. Right? I want to be accepted, loved, approved, and qualified before God and before man. And to prove that I can get that, I'm going to go out and reach as many people as possible. I'm going to fix their problems so that I feel worthy. I'm going to volunteer. Sign me up. Right? If I could just fix others and look like I'm missional, hey, but listen, if you were to extend the legacy of Jesus Christ all over the city and be just radical evangelist and just reach people at this increasing rate, but yet you're just chasing your own acceptance, you're worshiping yourself. It's worship unto you. That's really what's happening. You see how subtle it is? Boy, it's subtle. Emotive matters. God cares. God cares why we do what we do. Most certainly does. You know, 
I was assessed by Acts 20. We're an Acts 29 church. Some of you, that means nothing. (laughs) We're part of a church planting network that believes in planting church planting church plants. Okay? Um, and it's, it's the fastest and it's the biggest growing one right now. And that's exciting. It's very difficult to get into it, though. You have to go through a very hard assessment process. But we're starting to see right now on the landscape of, of Christianity in America, all the church planting networks are starting to adopt this assessment. ARC and some of the others, Missionary Church, they're starting to adopt these assessments because what they're doing is they're finding that the typical church planter is a male between the ages of 25 and 31. Right? I'm actually pretty old for a church planner, believe it or not, at the, at the old age of 36, you know? I'm pushing it. But what they do is they find out that these young alpha males, these are the quarterbacks, the ones rushing the field, sign me up, first to show up, last to leave, those kinds of guys, they're asking them questions like, do you really want to preach to see God visit a city, or are you just preaching because your daddy didn't love you enough? You know what I'm saying? Are you chasing acceptance? Do you have some big hole in your life where you're just trying to fill it with acceptance and approval? And if you can get it in a big growing church, then you feel good about yourself. They're vetting that thing out. They're looking for that. Because it's there. So our flesh, it tempts us to do two things to the city, to Knoxville. You to the Knoxville. Your flesh will tempt you to do one of two things. One is it will teach you to disengage with the city because of your own self-preoccupation with your own garbage. The other thing your flesh will tempt you to do is teach you to engage the city because of your own self-preoccupation and desire for acceptance. See how that works? The root to the problem of why we don't do a good job of being gospel intentional in the city is because we are very preoccupied, fascinated, fixated with ourselves. That's the biggest reason. It's not because you don't have time. It's not because you don't have opportunity. Because you could do it in a home. You could do it with your kids. You can do it at work. Even if you're in a cubicle and no one sees you all day, you can still be gospel intentional. It's because you're fixated on yourself. Me too. You're fascinated with yourself. We all have these big mirrors, emotional mirrors and spiritual mirrors. And they're just never big enough, are they? They're just never quite that big. So, what does the gospel have for this? Again, we come back to the same question. How does the gospel fix this in us? Some of you have struggled your whole Christian lives. Some of you have been Christians for longer than I have. And you've struggled your whole life with the fact that you don't feel like you've been very intentional with God's good story. What does that story have to do to free you? What does it have to do with anything? Luke, shouldn't we just have a list of ways that we can get better at this? Shouldn't we just have a list of things that we can obey better and perform better? I mean, can't you just help us and give us some pointers? I'm going to give you the gospel, because I think that is the way that we fix this. I'm going to explain. About 400 years after this story was written, just over 400 years, Jesus Christ himself would go waltzing right into the same city. He'd be murdered. Think about what's going on here. Walk into this city with brand new walls... Worshippers, renewed covenants, new temple, repopulated city, and they would kill the very man that it all pointed to like a big fat neon sign. It was all about Christ the whole time. The book of Nehemiah is not as much about Nehemiah as it is a book about Jesus, which we're about to see. Right? I mean, think about, think about this just for a second. Let your mind pause on this. Put yourself in this place. 
Jesus lives, then he dies. On a hill, right outside of Jerusalem. Right outside a hill. You know what you can see really well from that hill? Nehemiah's walls. You had a good vantage point of the walls that Nehemiah built from the very mound that Christ was murdered on. Think about the irony of that. I mean, what did these walls symbolize? It symbolized making a set-apart people. They said, this is Israel as a nation. We're set apart. We're different. We're distinctive. We are God's people. God owns us. That's what those walls did. And the whole time Jesus is dying on this mound, right outside that same city, and he's building these spiritual walls. Except it's not just splitting up nation from nation. It's splitting up the living from the dead. It's amazing. When you think about it. And it's the gospel for you and me. It's the gospel for you and me. The gospel for you is that grace was extended to you and you didn't deserve it. Grace is this. Grace is God dump trucking His blessing on you totally despite your best efforts and your worst misses even though you deserved something totally worse. You've heard radical definitions of grace growing up. I know some of you had. Grace is truly God giving you something that you did not deserve whenever you deserve something much worse. And he did this totally despite your best efforts to earn it and your worst efforts to blow it. That's the beauty of grace. That's the size of God. If we shrink grace, you shrink God. Or as D.A. Carson says, we de-God God. That's the gospel for you and me. So listen to this. Nehemiah, he entered a mess. He really did. He left a beautiful place and entered a mess. That really happened. Okay. He went um, of his own choice because the Holy Spirit empowered him to do it. Messed him up really bad. It ruined him for anything else. Okay goes to a city where people didn't want him. They even tried to kill him, right? It cost him a ton of his lifetime earnings. So we looked several weeks ago about whenever he was feeding the people and he was hospitable, it was costing him almost $10 million of his own salary because governors got paid. (laughs) He made a lot of money and he spent it all on people, on feeding them, even though they complained and whined about it and repeated offenders of that. He paid for it. So he gave his the lion's share of his young employment years his young professional life the best choicest years he gave to this city and it looked like madness because odds were stacked against him from the outside looking in it was stupid from the outside looking in they thought are you kidding me they mocked him they laughed at him who builds a city out of burnt out rubble with ashes with a burnt out people who does that nobody does that Nehemiah entered a mess Jesus Christ entered a bigger mess. He too left a very beautiful place to go into a very messy, slurgy, sleazy culture. He too was impassioned and had his heart broken for something very big. He too walked in the power of the Holy Spirit. He too would have hatred come from outside the walls and inside the walls. And he wouldn't just give a tithe of his life, the best first fruits of his life. He would give the fullness of his life. He too, he came to build some walls. But not just to build a city, but to build a kingdom. He came and he did it. He defeated sin. Think about that. We hear it all the time, but think about that. He defeated sin. Then he defeated death the very next day. I mean, think about what's going on. You know what else he defeated? Self-preoccupation. Self-fixation. Self-focusing. He defeated that too. He was showing us what self-denial looked like. 
The cross is the Super Bowl of self-denial. It's the epitome, the heightened portion of self-denial. It's the best example that we possibly have. Him living in self-denial and dying to self-preoccupation does something very radical for you and me. This is where the gospel is very powerful for us. Because until this time, mankind had always been enslaved, shackled to being focused on his own backyard, to some dimension or another. Couldn't help it. Even you and me. We couldn't help it. Some of you in here today are not Christians and you know exactly what I'm talking about. It's very difficult for you to see past yourself. Always something. Always the way you look, the way you think, the way people think about you. It's always something about you. You're focused on yourself, fixated on yourself. Your own garbage, whether people like you, are you approved of, accepted, on and on and on. Christ broke us free from this. What he did is that mirror that you have spiritual mirror, emotional mirror it's just not big enough he took it away you have no more of a need to be fixated on yourself because he gave you a new object to be fixated on it's the glory of God it's he himself I mean Christ broke us free from this and he didn't just I don't know, cast lots with God and lose out And he didn't just tithe his life. This was something that he wanted. He didn't just uproot and relocate. I mean, he relocated, but it was from life to death to life again. And then from earth up to the right hand of God. I guess you can't say relocated. But it wasn't something small that he did. He broke us free from something that we've never been able to beat. Right? He denied himself. He denied being preoccupied with himself. He denied being fixated on his loss. He denied being focused on his own life. And then he did something really cool. He died so that we could be broke free from all of that. That's what salvation is. That's what redemption is, is breaking us out of shackles. So you might still struggle with being all fixated on how much acceptance you get or your own grime. You might be, but you don't have to be if you're a Christian. You don't have to be. There is a way out. Okay? That's what the cross did for us. But then he sends us, and this is where missional living begins, okay? This is where it begins. It says this in John 20. It says, then the disciples, or John 20, verse 20, I'm sorry. It says, then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. Jesus said to them, peace be with you. Now hear this, this is huge. As the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. Well, what does that mean? It means we're a sent people. Sent to be like he was sent to be fascinated with his father's glory and with a long tolerance on people's sloppiness and mess the capacity to go into messy situations and have long suffering with them right i mean our goal isn't to manage our sin better (laughs) our goal isn't to gain acceptance it's in fact our goal is to deny everything that tells us to focus on ourselves at all that's the win here because the crux is the bottom line is i'll just say it that way is it's not about you is simply not about you. That's a hard message to preach. Nothing clears a room like preaching a message titled, It's Not About You. You know, we're going to send out door knockers, month of September. The whole month, it's going to be not about you. No one will show up. All of you will go away. No one will show up, you know? Because, why? Because we like to, our flesh, me too, me too, our flesh likes to have our ears tickled. And what does that more than anything? It's all about you. I'm going to tell you about yourself, right? Nothing clears the room like it's not about you. But the gospel removes the mirror from us. It does that. So we're free to be fixated. We're free to be enamored. We're free to be focused on someone, not us. That's the gospel for me. Because I'm just not that fun to be fixated with. You know what I'm saying? You aren't either. 
We have someone greater. I love that. My trash is irrelevant when it comes to God's mission in the city. Why? Because it's been paid for. My acceptance, my acceptance thermometer is totally irrelevant when it comes to living on God's mission in the city. Why? Because my acceptance isn't Him anymore. I mean, I don't have to pick it up with someone else. I don't have to try to Velcro my acceptance off of you. Because it's already been satisfied in Christ. I'm going to explain that here in just a minute. Because when it comes down to it, we are sent to messy cities with messy workplaces, where messy bosses live, right? Messy homes, where messy people are fighting with each other. And the whole time, you're a mess too, right? That's why the gospel's not about you. You're a mess, just like the mess you walk in. He is the only remedy for our big, fat, cosmic mess. He's it. He's our only remedy. So we learn something in this passage that God providentially chose by lot, so be it. He providentially chose who would go into this city for His glory and for the sake of the city. Did y'all catch that? Some people, He just ruined their heart for it like He did me. Some people, it was the casting of a lot, the flipping of a coin or whatever you'd have it. But He providentially did that. What does the word providential mean, Luke? It means that God determines, we're told in Scripture, where we're born, how we're born, where, you know, what time period we're born, where we live, who we marry. God providentially works out all the details, yes, even where the raindrops fall, because God is not that small. He's a pretty big God. So He providentially writes history. As people, we just record history. He is the architect of His own plan. He writes history. This is what providence is, right? And so hear me clearly on this. He does not need our cooperation for His will to be carried out. His perfect and ultimate will. He doesn't need our cooperation for it. Sometimes we lock ourselves into a theology that says, it's about me and I'm God's last hope. And man, if I drop the ball, God's out of luck. You know? We do that. But it's untrue. And it shrinks God. Why am I telling you all of this? Why am I going into theology? Because I'm going to ask you a question and it matters. Where are you right now? Providentially, where does God have you? What time does God have you? It's perfect, you know, and it's brilliant. It's brilliant. God is brilliant. Think about it. Where does He have you? Think about your life. Can you appreciate God's brilliance and how He has you? The parents you have, the city you live in, your age, your kids, your job. Everything. Can you do that? Can you appreciate his brilliance? Some of you grew up here. Some of you emigrated in here. Statistically, it's about half and half. Okay? Some of you are always going to be an employee. I'm sorry. You're always going to work for the man. That's just the way it is. Some of you are going to be the man, right? Some of you are always going to be moms. Some of you are going to get careers as your kids go out and go to college and you have all this empty nest to deal with. Some of you are going to be students. Some of you are going to drop out. I mean, everyone has a different plot. Everyone has a different place that they're at right now. Where are you? Can you appreciate where you're at in the city and what God is doing with that? Can you appreciate that in your place, in your station, God is calling you to engage a messy city? Can you appreciate that? Yeah, but Luke, I'm not a very good billboard for God's grace. Yeah, you are. You're perfect. You're perfect. You're perfect for God's grace. You're a work in progress. That's the best kind of billboard, right? It is. I mean, you're a mess. I am too. You're wrapped in a mess, covered in a disaster, and you're perfect for God. 
and you're perfect for God. You're a perfect vehicle to display what grace really looks like. I mean, what kind of billboard does this city really need anyway? Hey, we're all perfect hipsters with perfect theology. Come be a perfect hipster with us, you know? Is that what Knoxville needs? No. It doesn't. We do want good theology, by the way. But I'm just saying, the better billboard is, hey, we're all sinners that are radically kissed by grace. Trying to figure it out. Yes, we're growing, and we're growing in grace. We're trying to figure it out, but it is God's grace that's doing it. Right? You're perfect for God's mission. And besides the fact, the gospel stands on its own two feet, doesn't it? Even your own garbage, your own potholes that no one knows about, it does not disqualify or cover up the power of the gospel. It doesn't. Paul says this in Romans 1. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It is the power of God to salvation. Why is this important? This is why this is important. And I'm almost done. Listen, we're going to be planting churches as a church plant. We're not even two years old yet. Okay? We're not. We're already, and I'm not giving you any details, so don't ask me later on, but probably in the next 12 to 18 months, we'll be planting another church. That's fast. We're not even two yet. It feels fast. It feels like we've just started, right? We're going to be planting church. We're going to be planting new campuses. We just are. We're wanting to, that's why you see different people preaching up here all the time. Why do you think we do that? It's not because I just need a lot of time off. It's because we're training up new pastors. We're training up new teaching elders. We're training up new missional community leaders. We want to see as many of those drop as possible. I'm not satisfied with four, and I won't be satisfied with eight. We want to see those things drape. When I say me, me and the elders want to see those things just cover the city like a giant dragnet. Because you know, as well as I do, and yes, this is my plug for missional communities, that is where the church really is the church. That is where community really is community. Right now you're all staring at me and I have all your attention and you're going to listen to everything I say because this is the way we do it in America. But the deal is kneecap to kneecap over food in a living room, that's where you start bumping into each other, isn't it? That's where you start learning about each other, getting irritated with each other, loving each other, making up, getting mad at each other again, making up again, right? We're going to be doing this as much as possible. That is why we came. We did not come to be a church plant. We came to be a church planting church plant. And there is a big difference. We can only do this well. Listen to me. We can only do this well if you get over yourself. Not me, myself too. We can only do this well if your leadership gets over itself. If we as a church get over our self-preoccupation our fascination with our own dirt and grime, and our fascination with our own acceptance. You know, we can, uh, the worship team can go ahead and come on up because I'm going to finish with this. Did, did I get any questions? Okay, none? All right. We don't have to have any. I just didn't know. Okay. Listen, bottom line, Jesus left something very beautiful to go into a mess, to take a mess and carry them to something very beautiful. Right? That's what he did. He left something very beautiful, going into a mess as a missionary, taking that mess and carrying it to something very beautiful. Jesus is the ultimate missionary. He's the ultimate missionary, and that is how we are sent. He is our perfect example. Our sentness will look like His sentness. Some of you are very hesitant to engage a messy city. Some of you are very, you have pause with it. And it's because you see your own trash. And you're unwilling, you feel unworthy, 
You feel disqualified to preach the gospel. Some of you are like that. What I would submit to you today as we worship God, as we finish the service in worship, as you wrestle through some of these things, and I hope you do with God, is to focus on grace. Focus on God's grace for you. You know that trash in your life that you're so concerned about? Did you know you're only seeing probably 10% of it? And God still chose you? He still rescued you, knowing that you were going to be like that. Knowing all the stuff that you don't even know that you haven't even done yet. All of it. Everything you've done and everything you will do that you notice and that you don't notice, He knows. And He still looked at you as a Christian. He still looked at you and says, Yeah, I love you. Grace. Something given. All the spiritual blessings in heaven, it says in Colossians, given to you totally despite you. Our best efforts are what? There's enough sin in our best efforts to damn us. It's amazing, God's grace. I hope you see how big God is, how huge He is. I would say to focus on that because it's not about you. (laughs) It's not about you. Not even your failures render the gospel ineffective. You are perfect for God. You are perfect for God. Some of you are very quick to engage a city, but you want trophies, right? You want approval, you want acceptance. I would submit something different to you. I would submit also it's not about you. But I would also submit that your biggest failures, they don't change or alter your acceptance and your biggest wins don't either. Your biggest wins don't either. Your biggest foul balls for all of you overachievers out there, and I am one, for all of your foul balls, they don't change God's gaze upon you and all of your home runs don't change it either. It's the beauty, once again, of God's grace. So listen, there is no need for you to go grabbing for acceptance anymore, approval anymore. You can stop. Think about all the people you really look up to. The ones you listen to on podcasts and you buy their books. Whoever it might be, stick them up on a shelf. Spurgeon, Calvin, the Apostle Paul, Mark Driscoll, Tim Keller, all these people. Put them all up on a shelf. And you know what? You are just as approved in God's eyes as they are. Church planting... 150 churches, written all these books. You were just as approved, just as atoned, just as justified, just as loved. Isn't that amazing? How are you going to get more acceptance than that? You can quit grabbing for it. Just quit. You have all the approval you could ever want. You could have all the approval you could contain. Be satisfied with God's approval over your heart. And I tell you, that is the fire extinguisher for you trying to get it from everybody else. Some of you... The last group I want to talk to right now are providentially here, you could say, because God decided in the fullness of time that you would be here on this morning for the express purpose of hearing the message of salvation. I believe that. I don't believe in coincidence. I don't believe in luck. I believe in God's providence. And if you are here and you do not have a walk with the Lord at all, And you would maybe self-aware of that. Or maybe you're confused and you're not sure because you did something when you were six and you don't know if it took or whatever. If that's you, I'm here to tell you that Jesus did something so radical on this cross and he did it for you. He did it for you. He did it knowing you more than you know yourself, knowing all of your garbage, knowing that you couldn't clean yourself, so he was going to do it for you. So he put himself on the cross. He didn't go kicking and screaming to the cross. He tackled that cross. It was with joy that he went forward and he did that cross. With aggression, he went on that cross. And he took a punishment, he took an anger, and he took a wrath. It was 
finished on Him. And He did that for you. To rescue you from wrath. So I'm here to tell you, God is asking you to stop being preoccupied with yourself. To stop being focused on your own glory, emanating your own glory, but yet reflecting His and being focused and fixated on Him. It's a change. It's called salvation. Whenever you are able to say, I repent and I turn from my own sins, my own preoccupations with my own life, and I turn and I decide I'm going to be focused and preoccupied with Christ. And I'm going to follow Him all the days of my life. If you can do that, that is salvation. And that is what He's after. Providentially, if you're here and you've not experienced that, I do believe that's why God has you here. Okay? That's not me trying to manipulate you into some decision. That's really what I believe. Okay? So I'm going to pray for you. Because what we're going to go into now... Go ahead and stand up. Um, as we finish, what we're going to go to now is worship. We've got a few songs that we're going to lead you through and then we also have communion over here we have what we it's really it's bread and grape juice it's not real wine because we're on school property okay but what you can do is is go over there with your family you can go by yourself you can go as a couple you can go with your roommate we encourage you to take communion um, as a visual gospel that's what we say we do when we're eating with Jesus basically it's a visual gospel of the broken body and the spilt blood and as you pray whether it's over your family or with yourself, it doesn't matter to us how you do this. If you're a Christian, it is something we reserve for Christians. It is, it's an expression that we do as the church of God, as Christ's body. Okay, As you do this, wrestle with these things that we're talking about. Where do you fit? Are, are, are we having to cast lots? Do you find lots having to be cast for you to engage something outside of yourself? Or are you so willing to go in, but it's really for not the greatest reasons in the world? What is it that you struggle with? Listen, if you need someone to talk to, if communion would not be your outlet for something like this in worship setting, you just need someone to talk to or pray with. We'll have Jeremy in the back. We'll have Wes in the back. Wes is the young man that opened up the service. I'll be back there for a little while as well. We'd love to talk to you, pray with you, work with you through whatever needs to be worked. Listen, and if you want salvation today, if you want to be called a son or a daughter of our hero king today, if you want that, we will talk you through that. If you're confused, if you're confused on what that means, you're kind of sure but not really, but you figure you need to be sure about it, we'll work you through that. 